Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. Today is a great day to be amazing, to be the reason someone smiles today, be someone's blessing. Well, we did it, my friends. We finally got a conviction in the George Floyd case. We won that battle, that's for sure. But there are countless battles that we have lost over the last 250 years. And winning one battle does not win the war for us. And it is a fact that we are in a war. The true longest war this country has ever been in. My question to my listeners is, is Ben Crump the spokesman for the black race now? Because we do not need leaders or a leader. This is the way we have been fighting this war all along. He's from North Carolina, but yet he showed up in Minnesota. He showed up in in Kentucky for Bianca Taylor. And there's no doubt in my mind that he will not show up in Columbus, Ohio. And I am quite sure that there are plenty of qualified attorneys in Minnesota, in Kentucky, as well as in Ohio that could handle these blatant open and shut cases. So let's not put all our eggs in one basket. Let's spread this around. Let them know that we do not have a leader. We are moving as a people. Because having a front man has always hurt us. And with that note, my friends, it's time for us to slip into a little darkness. Who is Ruby Bridges? She was a civil rights activist. She was six years old when she became the first African-American child to integrate a white Southern elementary school. On November the 14th, 1960, she was escorted to class by her mother and United States Marshals due to violent mobs. Bridges' brave act was a milestone in the civil rights movement, and she shared her story with future generations in educational forums. Ruby Nell Bridges was born on September the 8th, 1954, in Tylerstown, Mississippi. She grew up on the farm her parents and grandparents sharecropped in Mississippi. When she was four years old, her parents, Aben and Lucille Bridges, moved to New Orleans hoping for a better life in a bigger city. Her father got a job as a gas station attendant and her mother took night jobs to help support their growing family. 
Soon, young Bridges had two younger brothers and a younger sister. The fact that Bridges was born the same year that the Supreme Court handed down its Brown versus Board of Education decision desegregating schools is a notable coincidence in her early journey into civil rights activism. And it must be noted, my friends, when Bridges was in kindergarten, she was one of many African-American students in New Orleans who were chosen to take a test determining whether or not she could attend a white school. It is said the test was written to be especially difficult so that students would have a hard time passing. The idea was that if all African-American children failed the test, New Orleans schools might be able to stay segregated for a longer period. Now, Bridges lived only five blocks from an all-white school, but she attended kindergarten several miles away at an all-black segregated school. Bridges' father had issues with his daughter taking the test, believing that if she passed and was allowed to go to a white school, there would be trouble. However, her mother, Lucille, pressed the issue, believing that Bridges would get a better education at a white school. So she was eventually able to convince Bridges' father to let her take the test. In 1960, Bridges' parents were informed by officials from the NAACP that she was one of only six African-American students to pass the test. Therefore, little Ruby Bridges would be the only African-American student to attend William France School near her home and the first black child to attend an all-white elementary school in the South. When the first day of school rolled around in September, Bridges was still at her old school. All through the summer and early fall, the Louisiana State Legislature had found ways to fight the federal court order and slow the integration process. After exhausting all stalling tactics, the legislature had to relent and the designated schools were to be integrated that November. Her father was right. This did cause trouble. But my friends, as John Lewis said, this caused good trouble. And fearing there might be some civil disturbances, the federal district court judge requested the U.S. government send federal marshals to New Orleans to protect the child. On the morning of November the 14th, 1960, federal marshals drove Bridges and her mother five blocks to her new school. While in the car, one of the men explained that when they arrived at the school, two marshals would walk in front of Bridges and two would be behind her. 
Now, when Bridges and the federal marshals got to the school, there were large crowds of people yelling and just throwing stuff. There were barricades set up and the police were everywhere. Bridges, being young and innocent, first believed it was like a Mardi Gras celebration. And when she got inside the school under the protection of the federal marshal, she was immediately escorted to the principal's office and spent the entire day there. The chaos outside and the fact that nearly all the white parents at the school had kept their children home meant classes weren't going to be held at all that day. And on her second day, it was the same as her first day. And for a minute, it looked like Bridges wouldn't be able to attend class. Only one teacher, Barbara Henry, agreed to teach Bridges. She was from Boston and a new teacher to the school. Mrs. Henry, as Bridges would call her, even as an adult, greeted her with open arms. It took this teacher from the North to accept this child as a student and not as a black student. Bridges was the only student in Henry's class because parents pulled or threatened to pull their children from Bridges' class and send them to other schools. For a full year, Henry and Bridges sat side by side at two desks, working on Bridges' lessons. Henry was loving and supportive of Bridges, helping her not only with her studies, but also with the difficult experience of being ostracized. Her first few weeks at France school were not easy ones. Several times she was confronted with blatant racism in full view of her federal escorts. On her second day of school, a woman threatened to poison her. After this, the federal marshals allowed her to only eat food from home. On another day, she was greeted by a woman displaying a black doll in a wooden coffin. It takes a special kind of soulless adult to threaten a child. Bridget's mother kept encouraging her to be strong and pray while entering the school, which Bridget discovered reduced the venomous of the insults yelled at her and gave her courage. She spent her entire day, every day, in Mrs. Henry's classroom, not allowed to go to the cafeteria or out to recess to be with other children in the school. When she had to go to the restroom, the federal marshals walked her down the hall. Several years later, federal marshal Charles Burks, one of her escorts, commented with some pride that Bridges showed a lot of courage. She never cried or whimpered, Burke said. She just marched along like a little soldier. But the abuse was not only on little Ruby. Her family suffered as well. Her father lost his job at the filling station, and her grandparents were sent off the land they had sharecropped for over 25 years. The grocery store where the family shopped banned them from entering. However, many others in the community, both black and white, began to show support in a variety of ways. 
Gradually, many families began to send their children back to the school, and the protests and civil disturbances seemed to let up as the year went on. A neighbor provided Bridget's father with a job, while others volunteered to babysit the four children, watch the house as protectors, and walk behind the federal marshals on the trips to school. After winter break, Bridges began to show signs of stress. She experienced nightmares and would wake her mother in the middle of the night seeking comfort. For a time, she stopped eating lunch at her classroom, which she usually ate alone. Wanting to be with other children, she would not eat the sandwiches her mother packed for her, but instead hid them in a storage cabinet in the classroom. The viciousness of that whiteness was finally getting to this child. Soon a janitor discovered the mice and cockroaches who had found the sandwiches. The incident led Mrs. Henry to lunch with Bridges in the classroom. Bridges started seeing a child psychiatrist, Dr. Robert Coles, who volunteered to provide counseling during her first year at France School. He was very concerned about how such a young girl would handle the pressure. He saw Bridges once a week, either at school or at home. And during these sessions, he would just let her talk about what she was experiencing. Sometimes his wife would come too, and like Dr. Coles, she was very caring toward Bridges. Coles later wrote a series of articles for Atlantic Monthly and eventually a series of books on how children handle change, including a child's book on Ruby Bridges' experience. Near the end of the first year, things began to settle down. A few white children in Bridges' grade returned to school. Occasionally, Bridges got a chance to visit with them. By her own recollection many years later, Ruby Bridges was not that aware of the extent of the racism that erupted over her attending the school. That, my friends, is the innocence of a young child. But when another child rejected Bridges' friendship because of her race, she began to slowly understand. By Ruby's second year at front school, it seemed everything had changed. Mrs. Henry's contract wasn't renewed, and so she and her husband returned to Boston. There was also no more federal marshals. Bridges walked to school every day by herself. There were other students in her second grade class, and the school began to see full enrollment again. No one talked about the past year. It seemed everyone wanted to put the experience behind them. Bridges finished grade school and graduated from the integrated Francis Nichols High School in New Orleans. She then studied travel and tourism at Kansas City Business School and worked for American Express as a world travel agent. In 1963, painter Norman Rockwell created Bridges' momental first day at school in the painting 
the problem we all live with. The image of this small black girl being escorted to school by four large white men graced the cover of Look magazine in January 14th, 1964. So there you have it, my friends. Ruby Nell Bridges, the child that opened the door for millions and millions of black students to pass through in the South. My lady, I hope this day finds you well as we honor you and say thank you. And friends, that music tells me that it is that time to go. But before I leave you, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Barack Obama. Change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. Until next time, my friends, it has been my honor.